Happy Resurrection Sunday to all of you this morning. Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. Let me invite you to open up your copy of God's Word this morning to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. Now, the text we're looking at today is the next passage in our verse-by-verse journey through Paul's letter to a group of churches in the Roman province of Galatia. Now, Demer and I chose not to break away from this sermon series in order to do some sort of special Easter service. We chose not to do that because providentially we land on a text today that is absolutely a beautiful explanation of what it is Christ accomplished 2,000 years ago. A beautiful explanation of what it is he did when he walked out of that tomb. And this text helps us to understand who we are in light of the resurrection if and only if we have placed our faith in the risen Lord. So as you're finding that passage of Scripture, let me give you a little bit of background here. These are uh, the churches to whom Paul is writing this letter, are some churches that he and Barnabas had started somewhere around the years 45 to 47 A.D. But the problem is that these churches have become infected with some false teaching. There was a group who came in who were trying to add to the gospel. They were saying that, yes, believing in Jesus, that's a good start. But you need to add some things like circumcision and keeping of the Mosaic law. Paul, when he hears about this, sends them this letter. It's a stern letter, like a concerned parent writing to a child who's wandered away from what he's been taught. And so he sternly warns them to add anything to the gospel is actually to abandon the gospel. In chapter 2, verse 16, which is the theological heartbeat of this whole um, book, he reminds them that they are justified, they are made right with God, not by works of the law like circumcision and, and other keeping of the law. They are made right with God. They are justified by faith alone. And so he defends this truth by going to the Old Testament scriptures and showing that this is what the scriptures teach, that the law could not save, the law could not give life. And ultimately, he goes all the way back to Abraham, showing that Abraham believed in God, had faith in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he was justified by faith alone. And we know this because Abraham had that faith long before circumcision came or the law was ever given to the people of Israel. And so he makes this argument that if we have faith like Abraham had faith, we are therefore sons of Abraham. And he drives that home even more importantly by saying that Abraham actually only had one offspring. That had to be shocking to the the Jewish listeners especially. Now the congregation he's writing to in Galatia is both Jew and Gentile. It had to be shocking to hear him say that Abraham had one singular offspring who was Jesus Christ. But why does he say that? Because Jesus was the only true physical offspring of Abraham who was able to keep the law perfectly. Who did all that God required in the law. And therefore, there's only one true offspring of Abraham. And he goes on to say that all of us who have faith in Christ, who put our hope in Christ alone for our justification, we are united to Christ, and therefore we become offspring of Abraham as well. As long as we're united to the one offspring, we are all offspring. And that's where Paul ends in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 29. I'll read this verse to you to remind you of where we ended last week and lead us into this week's text. Chapter 3, verse 29 says, And if you are Christ's, that is, united to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. 
So Paul, as I said last week, he sort of wraps up his argument there at the end of chapter 3. Okay, he, he brings it back to us being heirs of Abraham, Abraham's offspring. But like any good preacher, Paul wants to, to push this a little bit further. He wants to illustrate it, so that's why he has chapter 4. He's going to illustrate what he's talking about because he's a, a good preacher. He knows how to illustrate things. So as we open up chapter 4, this is really an illustration of the gospel that Paul is giving us. So please stand, if you would, as we read Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. We stand at Harbin's because uh, we honor this word, because we believe it is the infallible, inerrant word of God. It's all sufficient for faith and practice. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I mean that and the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that as we go through this passage of Scripture, you would help us grasp what it means to be an heir, what it means to be a son, and that as we grasp this, that we will be catapulted into worship, exultation, awe and wonder at what it is that you have done for us. The Scripture is very clear. So, Lord, I just pray that you give us ears to hear it, and that you give me a mouth to speak it, explain it well. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Perhaps, perhaps you've heard this story before of a wealthy man and his son who loved to collect rare works of art. They had quite an impressive collection from Picasso to Raphael, they spent much time just sitting together and enjoying the art that they had collected. When the Vietnam War broke out, the son joined the army and went to war. While at Vietnam, he was killed. And though the father had heard that his son died in a heroic act of valor, a heroic act of self-sacrifice, still the news of his son's death sent him into deep grief and into depression. Months after the death of his son, there stood at the door a young soldier with a large package in his hands. And he said, Sir, you don't know me, but I fought alongside your son. I was there the day he jumped on a grenade for his brothers and saved the lives of many men. And in my time with him, I heard him speak often of you and of your love for art. The young man held out the package and said, I know this isn't much. I'm not really a great artist, but I think your son would have wanted you to have this. The father opened the package, and it was a portrait of his son, painted by the young soldier. 
He stared in awe at the portrait. It was not fine art by any stretch of the imagination, but the soldier had somehow captured the personality of his son in the painting. The father was so drawn to the eyes of the painting that his own eyes welled up in tears as he looked at it. He thanked the young man and he offered to pay him for the picture. And the young man said, oh no, sir, I could never repay what your son did for me. It's a gift. The father hung the portrait over his mantle. And every time visitors came to his home, he took them to see the portrait of his son before he showed them any other of the great works of art that he had collected. Years later, the old man died. Pretty soon news spread that his artwork was to be auctioned off. And on the day of the auction, many influential art collectors gathered, excited over seeing the great paintings, hoping to have an opportunity to purchase one. It was time for the auction to start. And on the platform sat the painting of the sun. The auctioneer pounded his gavel. We will start the bidding with this picture of the man's son. Who will bid for the picture? There was silence. Then a voice in the back of the room shouted, We want to see the good paintings, the famous ones. Skip this one. But the auctioneer persisted. Will someone bid for this painting? Who will start the bidding? $100. But how about 50 Anyone? Another voice shouted angrily, We didn't come to see this painting. We came to see the Van Goghs and the Rembrandts. Get on with the real bids. But the auctioneer insisted, the son, the son, who will take the son? Finally, a voice came from the very back of the room. It was the longtime gardener of the family. Being a poor man, he didn't have much money. Matter of fact, he had no money on him. He wasn't planning on coming and bidding on any of the pictures. He said, listen, if I promise to pay, can I just, can I just have the picture? I knew the boy. And it would mean a lot to me to have it. Give it to him, the crowd shouted. The auctioneer pounded his gavel. Going once, twice, gone to the man in the back of the room. A man sitting on the second row shouted, now let's get on with the real collection. But the auctioneer laid down his gavel and said, I'm sorry. The auction is over. What about the paintings? Everyone began to complain. The auctioneer responded, I'm sorry. When I was called to conduct this auction, I was told of a secret stipulation in the will. I was not allowed to reveal the stipulation until this time. Only the painting of the sun would be auctioned. And whoever received that painting would inherit the entire estate, including all of the other paintings. The father was very clear in his will. The only truly priceless painting is the one of my son. So, he who receives the Son gets everything. Now, I'm not sure if that story is true or not, but it reminds me of a story that I know is true. The story of another son and of another inheritance. It reminds me of what we have here in today's passage. It reminds me of Resurrection Sunday and the fact that because of an empty tomb, we can be assured that if we have the Son, we have everything. This short passage today is dense with gospel truth. And we're going we're gonna to move through it pretty rapidly in order to cover the whole passage. Honestly, as I got into it, this passage of Scripture, maybe we'll do this at some other point in Harbin's history, this passage of Scripture could, you could do a whole series just on verses 4 and 5 alone. 
So we're going to move through this, but it's laid out so simply, so clearly, that honestly it leads me to, to stand here and simply hope that I, as the preacher, don't get in the way of it. Quite simply, the passage breaks down very easily, very easy for us to see in three main points. And I'm going to frame the context of the message in, in, well, in today's context of Easter Sunday. So first of all, the gospel message of Easter is all about, number one, who we once were. So you can go ahead and put that in your blanks. What God has done and who we are now. Now you'll, you'll see there's more there to each one of the points. But I want you to see those three main points to start off with. Who we once were, what God has done, and who we are now. So the first point, the gospel message of Easter is all about who we once were and who were we. We were slaves to sin. Slaves to sin. Paul, building off the concept of us being an heir that he mentioned in verse 29 of chapter 3, so he makes this mention of heir, he's going to build off of that now by giving us an illustration. Verse 1. I mean this, the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. The heirs, as we saw earlier, are, are the believers, those who have been united to Christ by faith. Now, to understand the illustration of us being heirs, we need to remember a couple of things from the previous couple of sermons. Paul, at the end of chapter 3, is alluding to the Roman practice of a father putting his son under the care of a pedagogue a disciplinarian to keep the child until he was old enough to be officially adopted and recognized as a true son. And he said that the law is that pedagogue. That law is there to restrain us and to guide us and to discipline us until we come to faith. Now during the time in which the Roman son was under the guardianship of the pedagogue, he was not free. He was essentially a slave. He had no legal rights. At that point, he was an heir in name only, but not an heir legally. The child had no more rights than a slave had until the day set by his father, at which time he would be recognized as a true son. And that day differed for each Roman son. Unlike the Jews who set the age of 13 as the age which, which, in which every child transitions from childhood to adulthood, in the Roman culture, the conference of adulthood was totally at the father's discretion. He would decide at what time the child would come out from underneath the guardianship and become an adult son. So that's why Paul says in verse 2, he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now the word here, guardian, if you look at the ESV, you saw that word guardian used earlier in chapter 3. And so in English, we have the same word used twice. But actually here in the Greek, the word guardian translated here as guardian is actually a different word than the word pedagogue. Okay? Here, both of these words, the word guardian and manager, are synonymous and refer to someone who is a steward or an overseer or an administrator. But we don't need to make too much of that difference. Surely Paul has the same Roman system in mind. The young man was under close oversight and discipline of the pedagogue as well as the other slaves who, who oversaw and managed everything in, in regards to his life. He was under those managers and that pedagogue until he was old enough to take charge of his inheritance. So why is Paul giving us this illustration? This is not a lesson in Roman inheritance laws. 
Paul is teaching us something about ourselves, namely, who we were before we were set free by Christ, before we were granted faith in Christ. Verse 3, in the same way we, Paul's using inclusive language here, remember he's talking to Jews and Gentiles, all of us, in the same way we, we also, when we were children, referring to when we were unbelievers, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The elementary principles of the world. What, what does this mean? I mean, I remember when as a kid I heard this. He's talking about like really bad principles you remember from when you were a kid. Like elementary principles. Oh, I remember Mr. Egler. He was horrible. All right. Well, what does this elementary principles mean? Well, elementary principles is, is one word in the Greek. Okay, stoicheia is the word in the Greek. And it, it's challenging to know exactly what Paul is trying to get at here. And that's reflected. If you look at different English translations, they translate this, this word differently. And the problem is there were two basic meanings of the word during Paul's time. Okay, one meaning, one t sometimes it referred to things being brought together. Literally, the word means put in alignment. So it was used to refer to things as in a simple, sequential order. It was used, therefore, to refer to simple, basic truths that children needed to learn. So this word was used sometimes in connection with learning your ABCs. The ABCs would be elementary principles of the world. That's why it's translated elementary principles of the world in the ESV. But the word also referred to the basic elements of the world. Okay? Earth, wind, fire, water. And the pagan Greco-Roman culture also allowed these elements to take on a religious overtone. For they, they, they thought that each of these elements were under the control of a different and perhaps even warring god. Therefore, some translations translated the elemental principles of the world or the elemental spirits of the world. So, so which definition is Paul using here? Is he referring to, to, to something as simple as the ABCs, that, that, that we are enslaved to, the, to the, simply the elementary things of the world? Or is he referring to the elements of the world that reflects the, the pagan culture of the world? Well, it seems that, at least in the context here, uh, that Paul is using this in the first sense. In, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, because we've seen him talking about the law, so it seems that whatever the elementary principles of the world are, they are used synonymously with the law. So it seems that Paul is saying that the law consists of the basics, the elementary things of God, that we children, as we come to faith, we graduate from them. They are longer, no longer necessary because we've entered into the adulthood of the gospel. So Paul is warning the Galatians that if, to go back to the law is like a Ph.D. student uh, enrolling in kindergarten. And so the law is, we are enslaved to the law, to the elementary principles of the world. But later in this very same chapter, now in fact, look down to chapter, to verse 8 of chapter 4. He'll use the word again. But this time he seems to use it in a different context. Look at verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that by nature are not God's. But now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back to the weak and worthless, and here it is, elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? So here, the elementary principles of the world seem to be equated with the pagan practices of the Gentiles. So which is it? Does elementary principles of the world refer to the law or to the pagan practices of the Gentiles? 
the, the phrases associated with the Mosaic Law in verses 1 through 3, but with pagan idolatry in verses 8 through 9. Well, I don't feel like we have to pick one way or the other. And I say that because Paul is addressing both Jew and Gentile here. Paul knows that this phrase can be interpreted either way. He knows that the, the, the interpretation of it, the definition of it, depends totally on the context. And we don't need to think that Paul was an idiot here. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's putting the, the word into two different contexts. And I think he's showing us that both Jew and Gentile are both, apart from Christ, enslaved. Enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The law reveals it, and idolatry is evidence of it. That we are enslaved. By the way, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 and verse 20, Paul again uses the exact same word. And again, in one place in Colossians it refers to the law, and the other place it seems to refer to pagan practices. So I think the point is here that all men, Jew and Gentile alike, are born as spiritual slaves, enslaved to sin. As Jesus said in John 8, verse 34, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Sin exposed by the law, sin expressed in idolatry, all men find themselves shackled by the elementary principles of the world. Titus 3, 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And friends, that's all of us. We were all shackled by sins. We were all slaves to the flesh. However, this passage in Titus continues, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become, listen to this, heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So those of us who have put our faith in Christ once were enslaved like a Roman child kept under the watchful eye of guardians, but now we have been made sons. But how? How have we been made sons? That's my next point. The gospel message of Easter is all about who we once were, slaves to sin, but also what God has done. He has sent his son. Verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now these two verses is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. It almost has a poetic flow to it, leading many to conclude that, that this was probably an early Christian creed. And we see so much. In these two short verses, we see so much about the gospel. There are five monumental truths of the gospel in these two verses. First, notice the sovereign timing. The sovereign timing of our salvation. Verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come. So God, like the Roman father who set the date for his child's transition to adulthood, providentially set the time for which his son would come into this world to save sinners. The coming of Christ is the centerpiece of all of history. Maybe some of the other homeschool parents can identify with this in here, but I remember um, when Heather put a timeline on our hallway in our old house, and she it was like that kind of butcher papers type stuff, and laid it out and had this long line as they were going to study history, and they had this timeline. And what was in the middle of that timeline? The cross. 
The cross was in the middle of the timeline because the cross is the centerpiece of all of history. Mark chapter 1, verse 14, we read that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 6 say, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And then Romans 5, 6 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The point is simple. History has not been left to chance. Every ruler, every nation, every citizen, every event in history has come about by the sovereign design of God. And Christ Jesus is its centerpiece. All things, including history, are centered on Christ. History is indeed his story. So at the fullness of time, at the perfect moment in history, salvation came. And we see that God indeed had set the stage for the arrival of Christ and the spread of the gospel. Alexander the Great's conquest of the known world had allowed the Greek culture and more importantly the Greek language to spread to every known part of the globe. And therefore there was a common tongue. And then the Romans who displaced the Greeks brought in a it brought in peace. It was a relatively peaceful time with the, the Pax Romana. And the Romans also brought in an infrastructure of roads that allowed travel from one end of the empire to the other with relative ease compared to the past at least. And then there was a, a messianic fervor amongst the Jews. The weariness of being under the rule of others was driving them to a messianic fervor. The time was right for the arrival of the Son. So we see the sovereign timing of our salvation. Secondly, notice the divine nature of our Savior. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. First, notice the obvious fact that our salvation is God's sovereign initiative. He sovereignly is over all of this text. He sent forth His Son. Sent forth, the verb in the Greek indicates that He was sent from where He was already. Meaning that Paul is communicating the pre-existent nature of the Son. He, the Son was not created. He was not chosen from among men. He was with God. He is God. John 1.1. 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. In John 17.5, Jesus prays this. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is indeed the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. But he, Jesus, in divine agreement with the Father and with the Spirit, was sent forth to redeem sinners. So we have the sovereign timing of our salvation, the divine nature of our Savior. And now notice the human nature of our Savior. Verse 4 again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. The word of here is very important. Born of a woman. It literally means out of a woman. This is important because one of the early heresies of the church was the denial of Jesus' full humanity. They claimed that Jesus only appeared to be human. He was more like a, a phantom. And if you recall, when we preached through 1 John, that was one of the heresies that John was dealing with. So we read in 2 John, verse 7, this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, 
those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now, why is it necessary that Jesus be born of a woman? Because without Jesus' full humanity, we could not be saved. He must be fully God. He must be fully man. One person with two natures. He had to be fully God for his sacrifice to be of infinite value. And he had to be fully man for his sacrifice to be in our place. Philippians 2, 6 says that he was in the form of God. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He had to be human in order to be subjected to the same temptations we are, to live the sinless life we could not live, and then take the just punishment for sin that we deserve. And he had to be divine, for only perfect, holy, sinless blood was sufficient to fully and finally cover all of our sins. And that is why the tomb is empty, friends. It shows that the sacrifice was sufficient and that it has been accepted by the Father. Oh, friends, why would anyone go back to the law? Why would anyone go back to the elementary principles? The empty tomb means that Jesus has done it all. And any form of legalism, any form of reliance upon our own works is utter foolishness and is an insult. You might as well spit into the grave. So we see the sovereign timing of our salvation. We see the divine nature of the Son. We see the human nature of the Son. Next, observe the necessary context of His coming. Verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus was born under the same weight of the law that all men are un under, in the sense that the law, the works of the law, are written on every human heart. But more than that, he was a Jew. He was, as we've already seen, the one promised offspring of Abraham, mentioned back in chapter 3, verse 16. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Judah, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to righteousness under the law, he was, and only he was, truly blameless. He was the only human being who could handle the weight of the law. That's the, the image behind this phrase, under the law, is being under a huge weight. The law crushes us. But Jesus comes and he can handle the weight of the law. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he fulfilled the law in the sense that he was the one that all of the law... Okay, the civil, ceremonial, and moral law pointed to, but also he filled the law and that he kept every civil, ceremonial, and moral law. And it is the moral law that all men, not just the Jews, are required to keep. But only Jesus fully kept God's law in every sense. And he never sinned. He, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, according to 1 Peter 2, 22. What's more is Jesus not only perfectly satisfied all the law's demands on our behalf, he also satisfied the law's curses on our behalf. That's what we read back in chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So our sin, our law-breaking incurred divine curses. Okay, And Jesus, only Jesus, was able to take our curse upon his shoulders, though he sinned not. And he had kept the law perfectly in our place as well. 
So we see the sovereign timing of our salvation. We see the divine nature of our Savior. We see the human nature of our Savior. We see the necessary context of his coming. And finally, we have the redemptive purpose of his coming. Verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Oh yes, Jesus, by being born under the law and satisfying its demands and its curses, has redeemed us. He has redeemed those under the law. He has removed the weight that was crushing us. He has carried it himself. He has perfectly obeyed the law's weighty demands on our behalf. And he has taken the law's weighty punishment on our behalf. And in doing so, he has redeemed us. This verb, redeemed. Okay, it's, it comes from the Roman practice of slaves having their freedom purchased. As we've explained before, much of the slavery in the ancient world, it's not like the slavery we can think of when we think of what was going on prior to the Civil War. Much of the slavery in the ancient world was a financial transaction. When someone was indebted, they, had, they, had, they owed a lot of money, they would sell themselves into slavery. So the image here is of that debt being paid and the slave now being set free. So Christ has come and he has paid the sin debt that kept us in slavery, a debt we could not pay on our own, and thus we have Good Friday. Colossians 2, 13, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so now, Easter Sunday... The empty tomb is evidence that the debt has been paid. And as I said earlier, although the Jews had the law in codified form, the righteous requirements of the law are weighing down every human heart. Paul made this very clear in Romans 2, verse 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness which leads Paul to conclude later in Romans 3, verse 9. What then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have all charged, for we have char already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, are under sin. So Jesus came to redeem all who would call on him by faith. Now that alone, as I said earlier in the sermon, is glorious. That alone, that he has come to redeem us, should send us out of here with rapturous praises on our lips. But he goes on. It gets better. We're not just redeemed. Paul goes on to say there was a further purpose of our redemption. We were redeemed, and it says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. I like the way Tim Keller put it. In the gospel, we discover that Jesus has taken, uh, taken us off death row and has then hung around our neck the Congressional Medal of Honor. Not only, we, not only are we condemned insurrectionists forgiven and set free, we are then stunningly brought into the castle, put at the table, and adopted into the king's family. And this happens only to those who are united to Christ by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, there's the union, we might become the righteousness of God. He made him to be sin. That is our redemption. So that in him, there's our union, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus the Son is the only true righteous man. And thus by faith, by union with him, by in, with our union with him by faith, his identity becomes our identity and thus we receive true sonship. Hebrews 2.4, as Deemer read earlier, I'm sorry, 2.10. 
For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He brought many sons to glory through that cross. But then he goes on in verse 14 to say this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps, listen to this, the offspring of Abraham. Isn't that interesting? Back in chapter 3, verse 29, we've already established that those who have faith are the offspring, plural, of Abraham, only because they are united by faith to the offspring, singular, who is Jesus Christ. So this leads us to our final point this morning. And this is what the gospel message of Easter is all about. Who we once were, slaves to sin, what God has done, he has sent his son, and who we are now, sons of God. Verse 5 again, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are, you are sons, God has sent, and this is the same word he used earlier about sending the son, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. This is the glory of Easter. We've been made sons and God has sealed the adoption by giving us his Holy Spirit. Do you see the Trinity at work here? The Father planned our redemption at the fullness of time. God sent forth his Son. The Son accomplished our redemption. He was born under the law to redeem those under the law. And the Spirit applies our redemption through his indwelling and abiding presence. A presence evidenced by the fact that we now cry out, Abba, Father. The only way we truly can call on God as Father is if the indwelling Spirit is there making it happen. Romans 8, 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. What glorious truth. Abba, Father. It, it roughly equivalent to us saying Daddy today. Abba, Father indicates that we have been brought into the triune love of God. The love the Son has for the Father is now present in our hearts through the Spirit. It's the same cry that Jesus uttered on Good Friday in the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba, Father. It's the internal evidence that we are part of the family. The Spirit cries, Abba, Father. It's a cry of family longing and family belonging. We got a call last night from Noah. And at the end of that call, everybody was crying. But it was late, and Kate had to get in bed, so she said she's going to bed. So I went in there to tuck her in, and she was crying. And she said, I just want Noah. I just want Noah. That's a family longing. That's a family belonging. That's what our hearts cry out. Abba, Father, I just want you. That's all I want. And the fact that God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts means that we have not been left to live this life alone. God is at work in us to make us who we already are, holy, righteous sons of God. And so now Paul brings this whole section to a close by repeating the word heir. 
So when you study the scriptures and you see a word like air at the beginning of a section and then air at the end, that's, that's, that means he's closing this paragraph out. So in verse 7, so, well that every word of scripture is important. So, meaning in light of the fact that the Spirit dwells in our hearts, because of that, so, you are no longer slaves, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The Holy Spirit, therefore, is the guarantee that we are sons and that we have an inheritance if and only if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ alone. Ephesians 1, 11. In him, there's union with Christ again, one of the most important doctrines of all of Scripture. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. These truths should send us into doxology. That's what it does for Paul as he's writing it out. Oh, to the praise of his glory. So believer here this morning. Let me close today's sermon by reminding us that we are indeed sons. In this latter part of today's passage, Paul mentions the word son three times. Sons, sons, sons. But if we are sons, we are also heirs. In the opening verse, Paul speaks of the heir being the owner of everything, literally the Lord of everything. Let me remind us that in the beginning, man was created as vice-regents to be God's rulers of creation. But sin caused man to fall from that exalted position. But now in Christ, we are more than vice-regents. We are co-heirs with Christ. The cosmos, all of creation, belongs to God's elect. We are indeed, as Jesus said, inheritors of the earth. We will reign with Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.21 says that all things are ours. But the greatest inheritance that we will receive is what Jesus prayed for in chapter 17, verse 24. And he prayed this for you and me. He said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus prayed that for his people. Guess what? The Father hears the Son's prayers and answers them exactly the way the Son prays. And so our greatest inheritance, our greatest reward, our greatest joy is to be with Jesus and see his glory. And so the next time my family gets to see Noah, he may bring us gifts, but being with him is our greatest reward. If we have Noah, we have everything. And if you have the Son, you have it all. The gospel message of Easter is about who we once were, slaves to sin. What God has done, he has sent his Son. And who we are now, we are sons of God if we have placed our faith in Christ. This is only true of you. These things here are only true of those who have seen their own sinfulness, understood their own helplessness, and turn from their own sin and turn to Jesus Christ as their only hope for salvation. So I ask you this morning, if you have never done so before, cast every ounce of your hope on Christ. Put all of your faith in him alone to save you. And if you do, if you do, you will then be united to son. And thus you will go from being a slave and you will become a son. 
And the one who has the Son, Jesus Christ, has it all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I praise you that the tomb is empty. And because the tomb is empty, the work of Christ is complete. And therefore, you now have sent the Spirit into our hearts so that we might cry out, Abba, Father, knowing that we have been forgiven. Our sin has been dealt with. Forgiveness has been purchased. But more than that, we've been brought into the family. And so, God, I praise you for what you've done for us. But, Lord, I also pray this morning. I know in a church building this size with this many people in here, there are some who have never bowed the knee to Christ. Maybe they've done religious things. Maybe they've gone to church services. Maybe they've heard this a thousand times. But they never said, Jesus, you are Lord. I turn from my sin. I turn from myself. And I turn to you only. Oh, Father, my prayer is that your spirit will stir that up in hearts this morning. That you would make that happen. That you would break sinful pride. That you would crack through hard hearts. And that this very morning, new children would be born into the family. So, God, that's my prayer this morning. So, Lord, as we come now, Lord, and we we respond with singing, Lord, I pray that you'd hear our songs, that they'd be pleasing to you. All we can do is leave here adoring you, praising you. If if these truths in Galatians 1, 4, verses 1 through 7 don't actually cause us to exult and have internal doxologies just about to burst out of us, then, Father, something's wrong. So, God, I pray that you'd work in our hearts Stir us up and ask us in Jesus' name. Amen.